Well, I want to begin our study of this great book of Nehemiah by answering, by asking and then answering three questions. No points today. Yeah, it's hard to believe. No points, just questions and answers to questions. And so if you're a note taker, take down these three questions because this is the framework for our sermon this morning. First question is, where are we in God's story? Where are we in God's story? This whole collection of books, this Bible is all tied together. It's all one story. It's the story of God redeeming a people for Himself. Where does the story of Nehemiah fit in this huge, grand story of redemption? And this is particularly important. We're going to spend some time here because it really sets the stage for the emotions that we see out of Nehemiah here at the outset of Nehemiah chapter 1. That's the first question. Where are we in God's story? Second question, who was Nehemiah? Who was Nehemiah? Who is this man? The book is named after him. He's already the main character of the story in the first four verses. We need to know as much about Nehemiah as we can this morning. We'll learn more about him as we study this book. But that's the second question I want to ask this morning. Who was Nehemiah? And then finally, what can we learn from this passage? What can we learn from this account? These short verses. Why is it here? Where are we pointed this morning? Everybody got it? Three questions. Where are we in God's story? Who was Nehemiah? And what can we learn from this account? So first, where are we in God's story? Well, those of you who know the Scriptures well, and I know many of you do, know that the Scriptures begin with the creation of the world. They conclude with the end of the world. It's a good place to start. Beyond that, we have this division between Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament, the first half of our Bibles, has primarily to do with God's dealings with the Old Testament, the ancient people of Israel, His chosen race. The New Testament records the coming of Jesus. and includes the writings of His followers and those who came after Him. And if you look at your Bibles... If you hold up the Old Testament in particular, if you hold up the Old Testament and you find where Nehemiah is, Nehemiah is about halfway through your Old Testament, right? It's about halfway through the Old Testament. The only problem with that is it's not halfway through the Old Testament story. It's not halfway through the Old Testament story. Nehemiah is actually near the end of Old Testament history. You see, the books of the Bible are not in chronological order. And I know for many of you, I'm not teaching you anything new here, but they're not in chronological order. So Nehemiah is at the end of Old Testament history. We are approximately a thousand years after the story of Moses. You don't need to know the Bible to know Moses. You just have to know Charlton Heston to know Moses. We're a thousand years after that story. 
Let me back up and give you a little more history. A little more review this morning. God created the world. He created man. He told man to obey him perfectly. Man fell. But God made a promise to man, even in his sin, that he would redeem him. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that promise to send someone to redeem mankind is what the whole Scripture is about. It's the unfolding throughout the whole Bible. God chose Abraham. God chose a man. said, I want to make a nation out of you. I want to enter into covenant with you. I want to be your God and have you be my people. Walk before me. My covenant is with you. He tells Abram in Genesis 17. Through the account of Joseph, remember the coat of many colors? Abraham's descendants, they end up in Egypt. They end up in Egypt. First to thrive, but then to eventually be taken in or taken over by the Pharaoh there and they became slaves. God's people that He chose are now slaves in Egypt. And God hears their cries and He rescues them and He leads them out of Egypt and He brings them to Sinai. He gives them His law. He gives them His Word. He renews His promises to them. They obey Him. They forget Him. They obey a little. They forget again. And they wander in the wilderness until God eventually brings them into land, into the land of promise and they establish themselves in this land that God has given for His people to thrive And they do thrive. They get judges. They get kings. David, Solomon. These are the golden years of Israel's history. The temple of the Lord is built in God's city, Jerusalem. God is fulfilling His promises to His people made long ago. But we're still 500 years before Nehemiah. We're still 500 years before Nehemiah. Well, the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, which is now in the promised land, it breaks in two. It splits into two kingdoms. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. God's people forget God again. They forget His covenant. They forget that He was the God who led them out of Egypt, who gave them manna in the wilderness. And they followed other gods. And so God sends prophets to warn them to preach to them, to call them back to repentance. Isaiah is one of those prophets. In Isaiah 1, 24-26, he says, Therefore the Lord declares the Lord of hosts, the Mighty One of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies. The Lord is talking about His people there. I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So the Lord fulfills His promise through the prophets to discipline His people for their unfaithfulness. 
The golden years are done. The kingdom is fractured. The people are forgetting God. And so God disciplines them. Discipline on a grand scale. They are conquered. They are carted away to foreign lands. First Israel to the north, then Judah and the city of Jerusalem in 586 by the strong, mighty hand of the Babylonians. Carted away. Now where are we? Well, we're not 500 years, but we're still 140 years before Nehemiah. We're getting there. And since the invasion of God's people, God's people are everywhere. They're scattered all over the place. Far from home. And and Psalm 137 is one of those great psalms which display the emotions of the exile. Let me read just a portion of Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, lyres an instrument. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, they say. You see, God's people, they long to be back home. For decades, they have longed to be back home. And we know from Isaiah chapter 1 that though the Lord is disciplining His people, what did He say? Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the fruitful city. God will return to them. He will restore them. And so in 538 before, still before Nehemiah is even born, God moves in the heart of the Persian king Cyrus. Now you say Persian king, I thought Babylon was, I thought that was the empire that conquered. It was, but at this point, Persia has now taken over the Babylonian empire. So now Persia's the big dog in town. And the Persian king Cyrus issues a decree, Persians were generally kinder than the Babylonians, saying, yes, you Jews can return to your homeland. The Babylonians wouldn't let that. But, the Persians did. You can return. And so now people, God's people have the green light. They can go home. They can go home. And yet what happens? Well, they don't all go home. Some had made lives for themselves in other places. They were settled in. They had good jobs. They had growing families. They had crops and land. They were fine. They didn't want to go home. Home is where your stuff is, right? This is home. Nehemiah's family was apparently one of those families. Nehemiah's family stayed in Persia. They just stayed put. But there are people that are returning, and there are waves of people that are returning. And Ezra Nehemiah was originally one book, the book that precedes Nehemiah, originally one book, and it's the account of those waves. And so the first wave is the first half of Ezra. 
50,000 people led by Zerubbabel come and they want to build the temple, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, to begin to restore what was lost. It was slow going. God's people faced opposition again and again. They got distracted. So God sent some more prophets. He sent Haggai and Zechariah to speak to them, to preach to them, to encourage them. And it worked. And in 515 B.C., the temple was completed. The second wave, which is the second half of the book of Ezra, was led by Ezra himself as he sought to bring God's Word back to the center of Jewish life. Jews who had long forgotten what it meant to be God's people. What it meant to frame their thinking around God and who He was. And then wave number three is Nehemiah. That brings us to the story of Nehemiah. Of what God is going to do through this man. I know that's a lot of history. Hopefully I didn't overwhelm you. I was trying to keep you with me, tracking you in terms of how you could see how this all fit together. I see some droopy eyes. Now, now you can wake, wake back up. Well, who was Nehemiah? <coughs> we don't know much about Nehemiah. In fact, we know nothing of him prior to this account. We know he's a Jew. We know he's living in Persia. We know he likely had been born there and raised there. Probably never knew anything different. Probably never even been to Jerusalem. We know he lives in Susa. At least at the present time he does. Susa, a city about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf in modern day Iran. Why is he in Susa? He's in Susa because Susa was where the winter palace of the Persian king was. It was a little warmer in Susa than other places. And it's winter. The Scriptures tell us it's the month of Kislev, late November, early December, somewhere in there. And frankly, Nehemiah, we don't know much about how he got to this position, but he's doing okay. He is the cupbearer to the king. Now what's a cupbearer? We don't have cupbearers today. But we do have this. We do have secret service agents. We do have those men who constantly attend heads of state for their protection. And the ancient kings, like our modern leaders, feared, rightly so, assassination. And so ancient kings carried with them a companion a food taster, someone to sip the wine, to take a bite of the meat, take a bite of the salad before the king ever jumped in. Wait a couple minutes. If he's still alive, it's safe. Doesn't seem like a very glamorous job. Indeed, it wasn't glamorous. He's taken his life into his hands every time he sips, every time he takes a bite but what I want you to see is that this is a prestigious position. I mean, this is the king. And Nehemiah's right there. The king eats a lot. Nehemiah's got to be there with him all the time. And so the cupbearer to the king ended up being a confidant. Often cupbearers were not just 
tasters. They were given other responsibilities. They were given other administrative duties and privileges. Nehemiah's doing all right. He's far removed from all the history, all the going on in Jerusalem, all the rebuilding, all these waves. He's, he's a thousand miles away. Yes, he's heard the stories. He knew that these things had happened. He knew that they were happening. But as far as intersecting Nehemiah's day-to-day experience, it just wasn't happening. And yet, and this is what makes it all the more striking, Nehemiah is doing well. He's made a life for himself. God had given this man a concern. God had given this man a burden for his work, for his people. People that were a thousand miles away from where he was. And this is what I want to hone in on this morning. Is the heart of Nehemiah. Now that's all background context. That's just verse 1. So now we're ready to move on to the story. Hanani returns from the city of Jerusalem. We don't know why he went. We don't know who sent him. It says that he's a brother of Nehemiah. We don't know if that's brother like Joe Zerfos and I are brothers or if that's brother like brother brother. We don't know, but he's close to this man, and he asks him, he inquires the state of, the, of affairs there. Nehemiah's interested. What's going on? Maybe Nehemiah sent them. What's going on there? And this is our first indication that, that, that Nehemiah is not just a Jew in race, in upbringing. No, no Nehemiah is a devout follower of Yahweh. He loves the Lord. Though he's in a foreign land, though he hasn't chosen yet to return, he loves the Lord. And as we'll see, particularly next week, he knew God's promises for his people. He knew God's plan for Jerusalem. He knew God's plan for his people to be restored. You see, Nehemiah grew up. Think about our timeline again. Nehemiah grew up on the words of Isaiah. The words of Jeremiah. Of Daniel. He knew God was fulfilling His purposes, bringing His name, bringing His fame back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah was concerned. Nehemiah was burdened. And yet the report that he gets in our story is not good. The temple's built, but it is totally exposed. Unprotected. The walls surrounding Jerusalem are broken down. The people are discouraged. Things are at a standstill. And Nehemiah can't handle it. And he breaks down. He breaks down. Now here's what I really want us to, to digest and think about this morning. This is what I really want us to learn. I want us to rejoice in. I want us to pray for in our own lives. That the Lord would give us a heart like Nehemiah's. 
See, God moved in the heart of Cyrus to bring Israel back. God moved in Nehemiah to accomplish what we will see he will accomplish through Nehemiah. God needs to move in us that we might be revived. That we might be renewed. Because what what Nehemiah sees when he hears this report is two things. He sees Jerusalem disgraced and God's people defenseless. And both of these things have to do with the fact that God's honor is on the line. God's name and reputation is on the line. The people who represent Him are in shambles. The city that is supposed to be the glory of His presence is exposed. This is God's work. This is God's reputation. For 90 years, they've tried to get this thing done and it just hasn't happened. You see, the destruction that Nehemiah hears about from his brother Hanini is not the destruction hundreds of years ago when Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem. No, the destruction he hears about was opposition. No, if we had time, we could go there. We could go to Ezra 4 and you could read about Ezra 4, 6 through 23, speaks of the opposition of getting these walls up. The project had tried to get on track, but it just wasn't happening. And so you can imagine the taunts of the nations surrounding all of this rubble. This, this people who had been literally manhandled by empires for generations. Now they're home. And they're still a mess. They're defenseless. They're exposed. And it breaks Nehemiah's heart. That's who Nehemiah was. And so the last question, what does this have to do with us? What what can we take from this? God's not building walls of stone and mortar He's not building an earthly city in our day. What is He building? He's building a people forgiven and transformed by Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Corinthian church, you are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells in you. And Peter makes this tie-in to what God was doing in the Old Testament when he writes in 1 Peter 2, you yourselves are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Peter then applies all these Old Testament titles of Israel to the church. Your chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, you're in the same boat as Nehemiah. You're a sojourner. You're an exile. And God is in the midst of building something. And so we ask ourselves, here in the New Testament era, here in our modern day, is all well with the church of Jesus Christ? We are to be a people of the Word, firmly planted in the Word's truth, without compromise. We are to be a people that is holy, because our Lord is holy, not caught up in the affairs of the world. 
but set apart. In the world, but not of the world. We are to be a new people with ties that are stronger than family, race, or, or country, bound together by our Savior. We are to be a living temple characterized by the presence of God in our lives and in our midst. We are to be a people of proclamation. Faith and repentance in Jesus is our message to the ends of the earth. And yet, what do we see when we look at the church? What do we see? Well, at times, not always, but at times we see sound doctrine left behind. We see holiness foreign to the lives of God's people. We're often characterized by worldly presence rather than God's presence. We bicker with each other rather than being bound together by the Gospel. And frankly, we're often mute in our proclamation of God's news. This morning, I want your heart to burn again for the church. To remember and to recognize that the church is God's chosen instrument to accomplish His will on this earth. And I'm not talking just about this church. About Ascension Presbyterian Church or Cross Point Churches. I'm, I'm talking about the worldwide church of which Ascension is just a small, tiny sliver. I want our hearts to break for the church, to remember God's unfulfilled, unfinished promises to His bride and long for them to come to pass. I want us to be moved as Nehemiah was moved. And I recognize that only God can give us this kind of heart. But He can do it. He can begin to do it even this morning through His Word, as He centers us again on His work. I don't mean to to paint this this grim, pessimistic picture of the church. I'm incredibly optimistic about the church. Not just this church, but the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. All is not broken in the church of Jesus Christ. God is working. But I do want you, like Nehemiah, to see that there is so much work left to be done. There's so much to unfinished business. And you know, sometimes with unfinished projects, they eventually become invisible. You walk by them every day, and for the first couple days, you remember you need to get to that, but then the next few days, it's gone. It's like it's not even there. I always remind us in leadership, in church leadership, to, to think with visitor eyes. To think about our life together, about things very detailed as well as big picture things with visitor eyes. We need to do that sometimes. We need to see the disrepair 
and yearn and long to do something about it for the sake of the King whom this church represents. See, Nehemiah was given an incredible heart by the Lord. And I I don't want Nehemiah to be up here. Nehemiah is a great man. We can learn a lot from him. But it's the Lord and his purposes that have given Nehemiah this heart. But God uses this man. He involved himself. And next week we'll talk more about the first steps of a heart that is burdened in this way. The first steps of a heart longing to see God's work finished and completed. But for now, for this week, just to get us going, may we love and long for what God is doing in His church. That we, that every one of us in here might pour ourselves with all that we are into that work into what He's doing for the glory of His name. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You so much for Your Word, for Your story of redemption that You are weaving throughout the Scriptures and through the life of Nehemiah. And as we have just scratched the surface of this man and and this work that You are accomplishing or that You have accomplished through him, Father, we pray that this first point of having a heart burdened for Your work, 